Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Matt had a telephone appointment booked with a specialist for one day last week. Now, he has had a bad ankle since well before the new year, and he had a specialist appointment back in, I don't know, March or April. He showed up for that appointment, and the person at the front desk said, oh, we canceled all his appointments the other day because he's really sick. Now, that's annoying, but what are you going to do? It's irksome to have fallen through the cracks in their communication, but, you know, there you go. So his doctor got him a new appointment with a different specialist. This was a telephone appointment, so the day before, the, doc- uh, the doctor's office called and confirmed which phone number the doctor should use, and Matt worked from home so as to avoid any interruptions during the call. The appointment was scheduled for 2.30. So five or six minutes after two, Matt goes to the bathroom so he doesn't have to pee during the 2.30 appointment. At 2.08, while Matt's away from his phone, the bloody doctor calls 22 minutes early. Now, if what he'd said in the voicemail message was, hey, it's Dr. So-and-so, I was ready early, so thought I'd give you a call. I'll try again at our appointment time, uh, appointed time in 20 minutes. That would be fine. Did he do that? Would I be telling this story if he had? No. Dude has the nerve to call 22 minutes early and say, you have missed your appointment and will have to rebook. Matt was, I think it's fair to say, incensed. And of course, there's no callback information saved in the phone because specialists are all like private and secret and stuff. So his only option was to call the family doctor who eventually got back and gave him a phone number and an email. And of course, the specialist office closed at three. He sent an email and ultimately he has been rebooked for an in-person appointment, but not for another month. And at no time did anyone from the specialist office apologize or acknowledge that it was a shitty move on the part of the doctor. (sighs) Matt, being the philosophical sort of fellow he is, is okay with this new appointment, since probably what would have happened in the telephone appointment would be the booking of an in-person visit anyway, and that's what he's getting. But it's freaking frustrating. And I've commented before on people taking responsibility for their mistakes and the difference it makes to have someone acknowledge and apologize. Like, how difficult is it? End of rant. Now, you may recall, last week, Griffin went into work at the music store where some kind of odd things took place which were kind of unnerving. And then that night, she went downtown to Rickenbacker Topiary's meeting place. When we left them, he was about to open a door and said, This is where everything begins. Griffin and the Spurious Correlations by Krista Wallace Chapter 3, Still May 6th Rickenbacker pushed the door, and the sounds bursting through it were nothing short of awe-inspiring. 
Purple wine with whipped cream and seventies shag? Fine by me. I passed Rickenbacker into the theater, at least that's what it felt like, a big open studio with a high ceiling and subdued lighting. Band equipment waited, keyboard, deep red, a yacht drum kit, amplifiers. But at that moment, just one musician was present. The most gorgeous man I'd ever laid eyes on stood in a waterfall of light against an azure blue cyclorama, and he played. I couldn't take my eyes off him as I sank into a cushy surface. He filled his jeans and t-shirt, leaving no surplus fabric. But although his body was attractive, it was not what seized my attention. Fingers flying effortlessly along the frets and tapping out harmonics, he played like he was channeling Steve Howe, Alex Lifeson, Jimi Hendrix, and Mark Knopfler combined. I love watching a good musician lose himself in his playing. Nothing else exists in the world but that glorious ocean of sound. His eyes were open one moment, closed the next, looking at the instrument or at some image in his mind or in the air in front of him. His shoulder-length hair swayed and his mouth, eyes, brows contorted in a kind of ecstasy. I recognized moment after moment from some of my favorite guitar solos interspersed with passages I'd never heard before. There went the Sultans of Swing. Right on its heels was Starship Trooper, segueing seamlessly into Black Magic Woman. Fast, slow, frenetic, sensual. I sat in awe. His fingers tangled out one final riff and his arm lifted into the air. The overtones floated to the ceiling and suspended there. I hardly noticed he'd stopped playing. I was in love. I could tell he didn't want to break the spell either as he remained motionless, his eyes closed. And when he finally opened them, lowered his hand and searched for a reaction in the dim light, he grinned shyly and didn't even toss his hair around like someone else I knew. Here was a guy who deserved to be conceited as hell, yet I could tell he wasn't. He knew he was good. Oh, yes, he was no idiot. But he had the air of believing it was a gift he didn't have a right to. He was too good to be true. Yet here he stood before me. Ducking underneath the strap of his royal blue Variac 700, he set it on the stand. At long last, I found my voice. Wow, that was... I searched for adequate words. Really amazing, I finished before I'd found any. Thanks, he replied, both hands on the arms of the chair as he plopped into it. I hear you're no slouch yourself. I was stunned. What? God, I never knew I was capable of sounding so stupid. He nodded in the direction of Mr. Topiary. He tells me you played an entire set unexpectedly without a lead, and you did it unplugged. Um... I didn't know what to say. Would my brain ever join me again? It was really only three and a half songs. He stretched out his hand. My name is Mateo. Griffin. Holy shit, I swear when I took his hand there was an electrical shock. And no, I don't mean he'd rubbed his feet on the carpet. It was a, an energy surge, sort of a wave, like when you're on an elevator that rapidly goes down, or like that time we'd been hit with such wicked feedback during a gig I'd nearly fallen over, only this was more localized, flying up my arm rather than a full-body thing. Do you want to meet the guys? The guitar god said. The rest of the band? I, uh, well, um, if, where, this, hmm, five. I'm sure that's what I said. Come on. He took a step, and he hadn't let go of my hand, so I was rising and following him over to the band's setup. 
grab a guitar, let's play something. Next thing I knew, I had a twelve-string slung over my shoulders, and I was surrounded by several other musicians who took position at their instruments, and Matteo was listing off names, but I didn't hear a word he said, and he played a familiar lead guitar riff, and I strummed at exactly the right moment, nailing that tricky intro, which was instantly followed by Matteo's full, rich voice singing the lyrics, and the drum beat kicked in, and after a time, though I hardly knew what I was about, I came in with the harmony line, and I was playing with this band as though it was the most natural thing in all the world. Maybe it was just the foaming wine, but we rocked. When we'd improvised an awesome ending to go your own way, a bunch of male voices congratulated me and made me feel better about playing music than I had in longer than I care to say. And then Matteo was pumping my hand and looking eagerly into my eyes with such clear blue ones that I felt I could dive in. Griffin, I... that was... well, it was terrific. How was it this beautiful man, this paragon of musicians, could be tongue-tied in talking to me? Thanks. I think I may have even said it out loud. So did Rick tell you, I mean, would you be into joining the Spurious Correlations? The what? The Spurious Correlations, that's the name of the band. Will you join us? I stared. I'm sure my mouth gaped in a fish sort of way. He interpreted this as rejection. If not, that's okay. You're probably really busy. He looked disappointed. No, don't let him think you're not interested. But how to tell him? What to say? Say something. But why me? Not that, idiot. I mean, it sounds... I'm definitely interested. An improvement. I just figure you could find someone way better. I really needed to learn to kick myself before saying something stupid. Well, Matteo said, looking around at the other guys, the recommendation of Rickenbacker Topiary counts for a lot around here, and I don't think I'm the only one in this room who noticed that you rather rocked just now. Agreement murmured through the space. You'd be a great fit. Let me interject a moment here. Rickenbacker stepped into the pool of light. There is a slight catch, and it is unfair of Mr. McCallum to leave it out of the discussion. My heart caught in my throat. Just a bit. Matteo McCallum? That was the dreamiest name I'd ever heard. Way more attractive than Jason Knowles. But Topiary had mentioned a catch. Uh Uh-oh. Salamander is a restaurant, not merely a music hall. Oh, yeah, music and... Pudding, was it? I asked. Correct. All our staff, musicians included, also spend some time working the restaurant side of things. We need an individual who can not only play music, but be of use in the kitchen or as a server. Well, I do know a thing or two about catering. See, my dad's a caterer and a pastry chef, and I've worked for him on occasion. But I have to tell you... It was insane, but I wished I didn't have to tell him. I do have a job already. Matteo and the rest of the band exchanged glances. I work in a music store. I teach and everything. Why did I feel a need to justify my job? Topiary pursed his lips. I'm afraid this position is full time. You mean I'd have to quit my job? Teaching music versus playing music. But also working in a kitchen. I haven't done that since I was 17. I've been proud to not be a musician whose day job requires her to say, do you want fries with that? I love my job. Your full-time commitment is a requirement. 
The figure in dress-up clothes had the nerve to apologize to the band. I thought I had found just the person to fit your and my needs. Wait, I said. I knew there were all sorts of questions I should be asking, but I couldn't think of them. There was something wrong with this entire arrangement, but in my desperation to not miss a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I couldn't think what it was. I couldn't think of anything beyond how much I wanted to play with this band, with Matteo. Matteo smiled kind of shyly. I guess you need to think about it a bit, eh? Yeah. I felt terrible, sick, like I'd let someone down. I do. The answer should have been so easy to give. And I have a friend's wedding to go to on the 19th. Well, it's not his wedding, it's his sister's, in Victoria. But he and I are going to be playing guitar and singing during the ceremony. That's really important to me. Rickenbacker bowed. Of course. The 19th of May will not be problematic. All right, then. I looked at Matteo. Can I get back to you? When do you need to know? He glanced at Rickenbacker, who said, They're playing on Thursday night. Could you let me know by Wednesday? I gaped again. But you mean you want me to play with you guys on Thursday? How could I learn all their tunes in only four days? How could I decide so quickly and give Brian such short notice? What if I don't? Are you going to find someone else? I don't want to pressure you, Griffin. Matteo put a hand on my shoulder, which sent another wave of energy shooting into me. But we do want a good rhythm player who can sing. I'm so sure you're the one. Is this what it felt like to be a dish of ice cream left out in the sun? A sheet of paper was produced from someone's folder. Here's a copy of our song list. This way, if you decide you want to, you can get started on the tunes. I folded it up without looking at it. I wanted to keep a clear head to think about this. What did I mean, keep a clear head? That would imply I had one to begin with. How do I get in touch with you? I had a faint hope he would give me his phone number. Why don't I call you? Okay, that was a decent alternative. I gave him my number. He smiled down at me as he squeezed my hand. I breathed his tangy scent and wished I didn't have to go home. I took my leave without finishing my wine that wasn't. This time I took the stairs. As I reached the ground floor, I wondered how to tell my band I had found a new one. Out on the street, I checked the time on my phone as I hustled along. It was blank. I stopped walking. Okay, that's really weird. Working inside the building and not out? Maybe there was some equipment around here interfering with the signal. I'd check it again when I got to the train. I hastened up the hill to Granville Street and headed north to the station. After about a block on the quiet street, I stopped and looked around. Something was off, but I couldn't put my finger on it right away. I stared around the way I'd come. Quiet. Wait a second. Granville is not a quiet street. It's lined with restaurants, coffee shops, trendy clothing stores, nightclubs, a bowling alley, a multiplex movie theater, a huge mall, the Orpheum Theater where the orchestra plays, not to mention that virtually every single city bus at some point comes down Granville Street. Even on a Sunday night, the place should be buzzing. But it was eerily dead. I counted only three other people, and they were all wearing long cloaks and hoods. What the devil? When I turned north again, it was like someone had flipped a switch. People walked the streets, coming in and out of bars and the movie theater. The doors of several coffee shops stood open and welcoming. 
an electric trolley bus whirred by, and a furry guy in a big ratty coat sitting in the doorway of a closed shop asked if I could spare any change. I couldn't. All my pockets contained was a paper clip, my desi damps, a guitar pick, an old Kleenex, and my transit fare card. It all suddenly seemed normal. I shrugged and went to the train. On the underground platform, the LED readout hanging from the ceiling said 11.30 p.m. I heard the hollow, windy sound of the train approaching and the glow of its headlamps intensified on the concrete tunnel walls. The readout above said, Expo Line 2, and then it flashed, Griffin's House. I did a double take and looked again. Expo Line 2, King George. Okay, good. Cursing myself for stepping into insanity for a moment, I walked into the train car when it opened before me and sat in a front-facing seat at the back of the car. I'd have to change trains at Broadway, so I had a couple of stations to relax and consider my options. Obviously, the strain was getting to me. Griffin's house, indeed. I didn't even live in a house. There was no hockey game in town that night, and if there had been, the crowds would mostly have cleared away by this time. No big concert at the arena or stadium, so the train wasn't crowded. I didn't pay particular attention to the fact that all four of the occupants sharing my car sat ramrod straight reading newspapers. The train left the tunnels of the downtown core and now rode along elevated tracks. I scrunched up in the seat, closed my eyes, and listened to the replay in my brain of Matteo's magical guitar playing. Oh, to have exactly what I needed within my grasp! It struck me then what the problem was with what had happened this evening. Rickenbacker had promised I'd meet a lead guitarist, and he'd been true to his word. But I wasn't looking for a whole new band. I needed a lead guitarist in my band. Rickenbacker's proposition meant excluding the group of guys I'd been working with for two years, including my best friend. And to have to quit the job I loved? It felt like an unforgivable betrayal to even think of it. But how could I not? Brian knew I wanted to play more, that I didn't want to teach and file music until my retirement. He'd understand, I was sure. But what about Calvin and the others? Lots of people play in more than one band, right? When the three-tone signal chimed and the voice announced our pending arrival at Broadway, I pulled out of my ponderings long enough to exit the train. I was aware of other passengers also walking the corridor and down the stairs to the other eastbound train. The train came along after a short time. I boarded and settled in to continue my deliberations. It wouldn't be my stop for ages, so I didn't even look up. But two stations later, the sense of presences crept in around me. Wondering at the number of passengers at this late hour, I drew myself out of my self-piteous wallowing to look around. I nearly fell off my seat. Why I didn't shriek, I'll never know. Something about an instinct to not draw attention to myself in public, I guess. But I did sit bolt upright with unease. The car was by no means full, yet every passenger in it, about a dozen, was seated at my end of the car. Two people directly in front of me, two more in front of them, two across the aisle, two in front of them, one in each of the side-facing seats by the exit, one in the window seat at the very back of the car, and one standing in the aisle as if it were rush hour instead of nigh on midnight. The rest of the car was empty. In case their mere presence wasn't weird enough, they all wore hats of some kind, some ball caps, a cowboy hat, some toques, a 1920s cloche, and lots of other styles. And another subtle thing which took me a few moments to pick up on was that each and every one of my fellow passengers was reading a book. At first glance, it wasn't all that strange, but the more I thought about it, 
Nobody was simply looking out the window. Nobody played a game or read on a cell phone or even read a newspaper. They were reading actual books, some hardcover, some paperback. But books. How often do you see that nowadays? Jesus, is this some kind of midnight book club meeting? I blurted. The heads tilted, turned, twisted round to look at me. Even the guy in the cubby behind me peered round the corner. They all, male and female alike, had short dark hair and dark eyes set in round faces. The name isn't Jesus, they said in unison, and they scattered as though someone had picked up the train car and shaken it like a snow globe. The dark-capped book-reading flakes settled all over the car, and most left the train at the next stop. I think I am allowed to admit at this time that I was more than a little freaked out. Weird changes downtown, train instruction readouts with my name on them, and now the synchronized literary team. It was all just a bit surreal. I stared out the window. We whirred through the swath of city lights, but I didn't play my usual game of identifying neighborhoods in the dark. I was on edge. All this spooky stuff had taken place since I met Rickenbacker Topiary. Was that significant? The rest of the trip was normal, and then I got home. I kicked off my shoes and hung my jacket in the closet. I'm pretty tidy. Just this once I skipped a few of my bedtime rituals and flopped fully clothed onto the bed. There was a throaty moan and an arm flung itself across me. I disentangled myself and leapt across the room to switch on the overhead light. It was the brightest and most obnoxious. "'What are you on that you could possibly imagine you are welcome here?' I yelled. "'Baby,' Jason crooned, shielding his eyes from the glare. "'Turn that off and come snuggle. I've missed your soft kisses.' "'Oh, God. He was a total asshole who could be so sweet, "'which is how he finagled his way into my bed in the first place. "'But not this time. Get over yourself. You're out.' Oh, lover, he said in the husky voice that usually melted me. You're not still mad, are you? He pushed himself toward the near edge of the bed. He was shirtless, exposing his muscular torso. He reached for my hand. Come play with me and let me apologize. I paced like mad. Damn him, he knew just how to talk, how to make me feel like I mattered to him, to convince me he was hurting and I was the only one who could soothe him. "'Sweet thing,' he murmured, getting out of bed and moving toward me, his cotton pajama trousers showing what he wanted. I stopped pacing, but didn't look at him. "'Baby,' he whispered, sliding his hands up my back to my shoulders. He leaned down and kissed my neck. "'Feel me,' he breathed. "'Just feel how much I want you to forgive me.' My chest heaved. I fought against it, but he made me feel so wanted.' He reached over and flipped off the light. As he turned me around and tipped up my chin, I heard music in the background. Guitar music. It was like having recorded the entire evening at Rickenbacker Topiaries, and by turning off the light, Jason had pushed play. It was Matteo's guitar playing, the same riffs and melodies, and it was just as magical. Stronger, more powerful magic than Jason's sexual wiles. I pulled away from my very ex-boyfriend. "'Baby, what is it?' Jason said in his boyish, pleading tone, but then the recording switched to a playback of a certain temper tantrum, the yelling and swearing, the shame and embarrassment, and the reaction of a crowd of influential business people. I came to my senses. 
What is it? You really want to know? I slapped his hands away. You're finished, that's what. You burned me. You burned the band. And you think a little sexy talk is going to make me forgive you? Look, I don't need you. And I don't want you. I heard his know-it-all smile. I'm the best. You won't find anyone to match me. Oh, yeah? I've already found someone who is leaps and bounds better than you. I poked Jason in the chest. He's a masterful guitarist with way better technique and finesse than you. And he's a super nice guy, not an arrogant prick like you. Jason threw up his hands defensively. If he's that good, he'd never play with such a mediocre musician as you. I leaned forward. He's the one who asked me to, and I've said yes. It was out before I could think about it, and just then, several things happened. Every light in the room flashed on, Jason's trousers lost their elastic and fell to the floor, and, to my astonishment, as if by magic, Matteo walked into my room. "'Can I help?' he said in his melodic, mild-mannered tones. "'As a matter of fact, yes,' I answered, glaring triumphantly at Jason, too glad to see Matteo to freak out about his sudden arrival. "'He needs to leave now.' To his credit, Jason would not give up without a fight. Too bad I didn't get the sense he was fighting for me. No, he was fighting for his misguided belief that he had any rights here. Matteo didn't flinch as Jason pulled up his trousers and stepped toward him, winding up a punch. His fist darted out. I swear I saw it. I swear Matteo didn't make a move. But it was Jason who was laid flat out on the bed with a welt forming under his eye. It was a good, solid punch. Okay, now was a good time to freak out just a little. I started shaking. What the hell just happened here? Matteo didn't answer, but stuck out his hand and said, Welcome to the team. Interlude, still May 6th. Rickenbacker burst into his office, arms raised in triumphant, ta-da, fashion, amid simulated applause. I... I'm a genius, he announced, the door closing behind him by an unvoiced command. Meanwhile, his friend Phoenix, sitting in the guest chair in front of Rickenbacker's desk, was unmoved. His eyes flashed wildly out from under his straggly hair. I just read this note. Phoenix shook it in the air before him. It's outrageous. Rickenbacker bowed a couple of times to an invisible crowd of cheering fans, then ended the recording with a snap of his fingers. The cheering stopped. This sort of thing was his specialty as instructor of audiovisual arts at Salamander University. He removed his top hat and placed it on the hat shelf. His own hair was curly and not the least bit unruly. "'I'm glad you let yourself in,' he said. "'I apologize for the delay in my arrival. I was busy doing our first bit of homework.' Rickenbacker had ever been the man of action, whereas his friend was the anxious type. Phoenix was an artist of a different variety, a highly respected clothing designer and manager of his own clothing store, Gobs of Togs. "'Without consulting me?' Phoenix slapped the paper down on the desk and stood up as Rickenbacker walked around to his chair. "'Mind the onion ring stand,' Rickenbacker cautioned, as Phoenix's hand narrowly missed bashing into said apparatus on the desk." Rickenbacker's floating chair lowered to the precise level of his bottom. He moved said bottom into it, and it adjusted its cushions in all his favourite places. He needn't have worried about the onion ring stand. The precious item shifted itself out of harm's way. 
Phoenix paced, waving his arms about in their loose wing-like sleeves. This is madness, I tell you. His left hand whapped the combination hole-punch pencil sharpener drink dispenser, which sat on the other corner of the desk, and it tipped. Rickenbacker said, Careful, family heirloom, that, and righted the device. His chair lowered again with him in it. Some day those sleeves on your jacket will generate lift and you'll be carried away by the slightest breeze. Phoenix frowned and rubbed the back of his left hand with his right. Why is it made of fecking glass, then? He hadn't stopped pacing, and Rickenbacker wondered idly if his friend was wearing a pedometer to keep track of his daily exercise. Phoenix pointed at the document on the desk as he went by, and incredibly, to Rickenbacker, did not catch the papers in his air current and send them fluttering round the room. What kind of ghastly rules are those supposed to be? Rickenbacker rearranged a few things on the desk and put his scissors away in a drawer. Now, Phoenix, I am much more of a people person than you are, and since we're dealing with the other world, I knew my delicate approach would be more effective. It's not glass, it's Balerian crystal, and everyone knows the best pencil sharpeners are the Balerian crystal ones. Phoenix scowled. What about the whole... And it's the sesquicentenary, after all. It makes sense to me that the rules would be more complicated this time. The other man stopped walking and clutched his hair. You are impossible to carry on a conversation with. The whole punch, too. What? If you listen to the replay, I believe you'll find I have answered your questions in the order you asked them. He took an onion ring, dipped it in chipotle mayo, and it crunched exquisitely as he bit into it. The mayo had the perfect spicy tang. Phoenix flicked his finger a couple of times from left to right and said, Go. The conversation replayed, and Phoenix was forced to concede. Okay, fine. He let go of his hair and pressed his hands against the wall instead. Music and catering, what's that supposed to mean, damn them? Rickenbacker tried to keep the there-there tone to a minimum. He picked up the notice and read it with reverence. The sesquicentenary of the Quinquay Annual Live-Action Role-Playing Tournament. This year's challenge, participants must include an other-world person in a scenario involving music and catering. Your other-world participant must remain unaware of the circumstances of his or her involvement for the entire duration of the competition. In a time frame of two weeks ending on Fantlop the 83rd, this person must be inveigled to commit the final challenge. And here was the part Rickenbacker liked best, but would have to do some inveigling of his own with Phoenix to obtain his agreement. Now, Phoenix, you must agree that we should expect a sesquicentenary to have some interesting impediments. It can't just be the same as every other time. Besides, the vagueness of music and catering is good. It gives us freedom to play. How can you just sit there? How are we going to get someone from the other world? This chair is extraordinarily comfortable. You should get one. I have already found someone, and she has committed. She will fit in nicely. Phoenix slumped down into the guest armchair and rubbed his knees. How did you manage it? Rickenbacker clasped his hands on his desk. I am pretty much a genius, you know. You have simply to find a person who is impressionable, find out what she wants, and offer it to her in such a way that it is irresistible. I found just such a person. Here. He stuck out a finger. Phoenix leaned forward so Rickenbacker could tap him on the forehead. Now sit back. 
Phoenix leaned back in his chair and closed his eyes. Rickenbacker could see the twitch in his eyes, indication that Phoenix's introspect drop division had kicked in. He observed his friend's facial expressions alter as he watched the sped-up version of Rickenbacker's contact with Griffin Trowbridge to date. He counted on Phoenix's lack of attention to detail. The fellow had skimmed the tournament challenge, but usually relied on Rickenbacker to explain the fine print. Rickenbacker had made a habit of teasing out Phoenix's enthusiastic participation before giving him all the information. If he gave too much at the start, his friend might be frightened away. Particularly this time, with that final challenge. Nice recovery on the street description, Phoenix said, absorbed in the audiovisual experience. Rickenbacker paused the playback. Yes, all I was able to find to aid with the creation of the setting were a few five-second video recordings of various areas in the other world, and although they were high definition, they were too short to give me everything I needed, hence the initial lack of detail on Granville Street. I had to improvise and fill in the gaps. If you look too closely, the people all look the same. They're extras, you see. It happened so fast I didn't quite have time to set the scene properly, and it seemed to throw her off for a moment. The reality scan charm is a tad delayed, but it catches up eventually, which explains what you noticed, the description of Granville Street. I shall have to keep close track of that as we go along. Again, only short snippets of scanning are permitted by the tournament. But in the bit coming up on the train, you'll see that in truth it enhances the storyline. Play. Phoenix laughed out loud when it came to the train passengers reading books and all looking somewhat familiar. Nice touch, he said. Is it intended to put her on edge like that? Indeed, yes. Rickenbacker was surprised by this uncharacteristically perspicacious remark from Phoenix. You see, the goal from the start is the final challenge, and we won't achieve it if she is completely at ease. Good thinking, Phoenix said vaguely. He was more interested in the audiovisual feast before him than in thinking ahead. Rickenbacker felt hopeful that he had full buy-in from Phoenix. When the playback was over, Phoenix opened his eyes. Nicely done, but who is this Mateo person? Rickenbacker smiled and waggled his eyebrows. Doris, he called. Yes, came her disembodied voice. Please send in our MGC. Certainly. A moment later, there was a knock on the door, and in walked the character who would be known as Matteo McCallum for the duration of the tournament. He stood in the middle of the room for observation. Phoenix got up, and his pointy-toed boots made no sound on the carpet as he walked around him, scrutinizing the design. Wow, he turned out great! Matteo blinked. He's based on your design, Rickenbacker said. I recognize him, but I thought I had lost those blueprints. Wow, I had no idea he would turn out so well. He frowned at Rickenbacker. Did you expand him? Rickenbacker swept his arm at the MGC, as you see. No, I mean, add some details, give him backstory, Phoenix explained. He wasn't complete. Those were just blueprints, after all. Nonsense, Rickenbacker dismissed him with a wave. He has plenty to get him through the one job he has to do. That won't matter at all. Well, if you're sure, Phoenix said, then we've never been allowed to use MGCs before. Rickenbacker picked up the tournament notice and instructions. Maybe they changed the rules, or maybe they left off that rule in a stunning oversight, but nowhere on here does it say magically generated characters are forbidden, Rickenbacker shrugged. 
If they make an issue of it, so will I. Well, good job. What else have you already taken care of? The setting of the restaurant and rehearsal studio is complete and ready to be populated. I believe we shall be able to control other things as we go along. Griffin is a very intense person. Her emotions and thoughts are easy to read, though, as I said, I need to address the delay in the scanner. Have an onion ring. Rickenbacker took one. Pesto dip this time. Phoenix declined. She had better be the one we need. I want that title back, Rickenbacker. If I see those smug smirks on Blinky and Jethro's faces again. Rickenbacker waved a hand. You must keep in mind that it was simply a matter of timing. They cleaned up their five natural disasters with greater efficiency than we did. That was all. We were well on the way. And frankly, I believe whoever was in charge of doling out the herd animals had taken too much of the old blimlim oil. Phoenix stormed about. Yeah, Blinky and Jethro were so smug that they got their sheep under control so dang fast. We should have got bonus points for the way we dealt with ours. Mosquitoes were a way bigger challenge. His eyes flashed and his face flushed. Rickenbacker smiled and nodded, encouraging him to be seated. He didn't. And besides, Rickenbacker said, that was five years ago. Since then, those two have done bugger all but gallivant around Salamander being guests on talk shows and waving on parade floats. Don't forget the ribbon-cutting ceremonies. Rickenbacker bowed. You see my point. Phoenix leaned forward and squinted. No? Rickenbacker smiled patiently. They've become complacent, dear fellow. Worry not. With our other world character as malleable as I believe she will be, and if we are on top of our reactions, the transitions should be smooth. I do believe it shall be... He tasted the word as he applied it. Fun. The MGC known as Mateo blinked. Phoenix sat down eagerly. What do I get to do? Rickenbacker seized this opening. As I have already put in a great deal of effort to earn her trust, it makes sense I should carry on with that role. Alternatively, you get to be the antagonist. Phoenix frowned like he knew something was up. What does that mean? Rickenbacker grinned and made his eyes twinkle. You, my friend, have the greatest honor of all, the pivotal moment. You mean the final challenge? I do. Rickenbacker laid one hand on top of the other. Phoenix grabbed the notice. Rickenbacker watched his eyes flit back and forth as he scanned it, then widen as they found the line in question. Phoenix stared at him. With a knife? Rickenbacker grinned. I do love this game. But, but now, Phoenix, but all of Salamander will be watching via introspect drop division. Rickenbacker rose and his chair moved out of his way for him. He went around the desk to put his arm around Phoenix's shoulders. There will be daily updates on the news. It is required viewing for all schoolchildren ages ten and up. My wife has already been in contact with yours and several others, setting up an every-other-day fan club meeting to chat about the event and make predictions. Jordana is writing an article from the club's perspective for the semi-daily palpitator. My friend, when we win, you will be the hero of the tournament. You will inspire future generations of LARPing competitors. Songs will be written about you. People will have your name put on items of clothing and towels. In fact, you will be able to design your own egocentric-inspired line of clothing and charge exorbitant prices for it.
He watched Phoenix's eyes glaze over at the very dream of it. But, Phoenix whispered, with a knife? Rickenbacker guided his friend toward the door and through it. Trust me. He closed the door, leaving Phoenix on the other side of it. He rubbed his hands with glee. He looked at Matteo, took him by the shoulders, and said, You, handsome, are the key to our success. Now, go and be everything our griffin desires. Matteo nodded and left the room. Rickenbacker tested the word again. Fun! He liked it. So, I guess Griffin is committed. I hope you're now getting a sense of what's actually going on here. Tune in next week when Griffin will say, I have to take transit! So hit like and subscribe and share with your friends. Send me an email at totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com to get on my email list. Uh, find me on Instagram at thecrystalwallace, uh, Twitter at crystalwallace, and my website, of course, is crystalwallace.com. I appreciate my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Thanks, Phil Dirksen. And I also have to thank Jasper Ford. He helped me out with the story structure at the beginning, so I'm really grateful for his input. He's one of my favorite authors. Check out his work. Jasper Ford, and his last name is spelled F-F-O-R-D-E. Thanks so much to you. Now, go be fantastic.